I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is the podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. It began with an ice cream. Zimbabwe's long-term dictator was ousted by events that started off with an ice cream. Stick with me here, listener. It gets ugly and complicated. The country of my birth, Zimbabwe, attained independence after a long-drawn civil war in 1980. From that time, my people had only known one president, Robert Mugabe. Up until after a few weeks ago, at 93 years old, he was the third longest-serving president. However, a ruthless succession battle was unfolding in Zimbabwe while Mugabe's wife and his vice president were locking horns in a very bitter succession battle, which culminated in the poisoning of Emerson Mnangagwa after he had been offered an ice cream at a political rally. He was flown to South Africa where doctors reported finding he had been poisoned, leading to severe liver damage in a failed assassination attempt by the allies of the First Lady. And this ultimately inspired him and millions of disgruntled Zimbabweans to push harder for the end of Mugabe's reign. After mass protests and a military takeover, the power struggle was ultimately won by Mnangagwa, who was inaugurated as Zimbabwe's second president only a few weeks ago on November 24th. My guest today is less known for his abilities to bring down African dictatorships as he is about his prowess at making ice cream. But so good are his ice creams, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't a Chunky Monkey or a Cherry Garcia imitation that had somehow made its way to Zimbabwe. Jerry Greenfield is a co-founder of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream. Jerry and his friend Ben Cohen opened Ben & Jerry's homemade ice cream scoop shop in an old gas station in downtown Burlington, Vermont in 1978. The company now operates globally as a fully formed subsidiary of Unilever. Its headquarters and operations, however, still remain here in Vermont. Jerry, welcome to the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. Thank you. That was quite a story also. (laughs) Yeah, so the ice cream scandal is actually one of the more colorful details of the extraordinary history of Zimbabwe. Uh, Did you ever think that the product you spent your life perfecting would be capable of bringing down dictatorships? No, ice cream is not usually thought of in those terms, but uh, I guess I guess it's a very powerful food. <laughs> exactly. So uh just want to start here by asking you, what was your childhood like and what social groups did you belong to in school? So both Ben and I grew up in the same town. Uh, we grew up in a small town called Merrick on Long Island, uh, a suburb of New York. And uh, it was a fairly typical middle-class suburb that was completely white, very mainstream. And I was a kid who 
followed all the rules, did everything I was told. I was, I was a good boy. I was, you know, kind of nerdy, a good student, not very social and not that colorful either. I mean, uh, I wouldn't have picked me out of a crowd. <laughs> so you've known Ben uh, since you guys were in grade school? We actually met in junior high school. So we went to different grade schools. We met in seventh grade where we went to the same junior high school. And we met because we were both kind of fat, kind of unpopular kids. And we <laughs> hung out with other kids that were sort of like that. You know, you ask what our social groups were like. We were, we were, we were not in the popular fast crowd. We were in the slow crowd. <laughs> so are you guys uh, the, your personality is still essentially the same 60 years later you know we are uh, there, there are things about Ben and myself that are very similar we both have a very similar world view and I think we have a similar sense of humor and we have very similar thoughts about oh I don't know community and people all taking care of each other. And then there are things about us that are very, very different. Ben is very creative and uh, a real risk taker, very entrepreneurial. And I am, uh, I, I like things that are more manageable. I, I am not looking for more excitement in my life. And Ben is always looking for more excitement. <laughs> So I guess uh, opposites attracted in a very real sense there. Yeah, certainly with us, uh, it works out really well. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny. It's, it's always worked out really well uh, in terms of working together because we have very different interests in the kind of work we do. Uh, you know, I mentioned Ben is very creative. He's the guy who came up with all the flavors uh, and he did all the marketing for Ben and Jerry's. and. In, in terms of the mission of the company and developing a social mission, Ben was the driving force behind that. Uh, and I, I like to do things that are more manageable. I made all the ice cream. So I'm, I'm very good if I know what my task is. And Ben works really well without structure. And so to, together, those two things worked out really well. Hmm, that's interesting. So, so you guys uh, stuck together through high school, I'm assuming, and then uh, did you go to the same colleges? No, we uh, so we did go to high school together. We both graduated together in 1969. Ben went to college, although he didn't really want to go, but his parents wanted him to go, and he went for about a year and a half, and he dropped out of school and. He went back to school a couple more times and dropped out again. And he eventually was working all sorts of different jobs, mostly to entertain himself. And he had tried to become an organic gardener. And, and right before we opened up our little ice cream shop, Ben was making pottery uh, and wanted to become a potter. But... He wasn't really selling enough pottery to support himself. And I went to college. I did four years straight, and I uh, was trying to get into medical school, and I got rejected from all the medical schools that I applied to. So Ben was failing at 
becoming a potter and I was failing at trying to become a doctor and we had always stayed in touch and we thought, well, why don't we try to get together and try to do something fun? And, uh, you know, we, we had always liked to eat. Uh, and so we thought we would just open up some kind of food thing. We picked ice cream because homemade ice cream was making somewhat of a resurgence. And that's, that, that's all the thought that went into it. There was not a whole lot of planning. <laughs> so I, I can't help myself but think that uh, Ben was trying to sell pot in a very real sense of the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, 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 I think it's so interesting because people look at Ben and Jerry's as this, uh, you know, very successful company, which it is, but but the, the roots of it, and certainly the roots for Ben and me, were a failure of not of not being able to succeed with the things we were trying to do. Yeah, it's actually, I was going to comment on that and say that at the risk of giving away the, the happy ending here, it is a genuine story about people that um, were underachievers and maybe, you know, had counterculture values and very humble beginnings and yet persevered and was successful at the end of the day. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we, we may talk about it more, but I think throughout the history of the company, uh, it kept running into these points where things were not working, which I think I think is true of a lot of entrepreneurial businesses. And and the trick, or not really the trick, but, but what you need to do is be able to figure out how do you overcome these things that look like they're going to keep you from succeeding. Uh, and, and so that's been a theme throughout the, the company. So walk me through the process of coming up with the idea of Ben and & Jerry's and how you ended up in Vermont. Sure. We, uh, you know, we came up with this idea of a homemade ice cream parlor. And of course, didn't know anything about how to make ice cream. So we ended up taking a correspondence course in how to make ice cream. Uh, so Ben and I did that together uh, out of our houses. And then we, we were trying to figure out a place where we could open up a little shop. And we didn't have very much money. So we thought we'd like to open up in a place where uh, there wasn't other ice cream parlors. And also, we wanted to be in a college town because we thought college kids would eat a lot of ice cream. So <laughs> we did this big research project to try to find a warm college town. And, and it turned out that all the places we were looking at already had ice cream parlors. Uh, so Ben used to live in the Adirondacks across Lake Champlain from Vermont. He was familiar with Burlington, and we we realized Burlington didn't really have an ice cream parlor because it was so cold all the time. But that that did not deter us, and so we moved to Vermont in 1977 with the idea of opening up a little shop. It seems a little counterintuitive, though, to open a ice cream shop all the way up in the northeast, sort of rural America. It's completely counterintuitive. It's the reason there were no other ice cream parlors. 
in northern Vermont. And uh, ironically, I mean, it, it, it was a very difficult place to have an ice cream shop. Uh, there's a very short ice cream season, as you might imagine. Uh, so when we first opened up, we also tried to serve food along with the ice cream. And the food never really, uh, we never really sold much. Uh, we, we made crepes for a while. We made sandwiches for a while. We had soup. We oh, had really? All sorts of, oh, yeah. Uh, and none of them worked. And the only thing that, that worked was ice cream, but but we weren't really selling enough ice cream to stay in business either. And that's, that's what pushed us into starting to package ice cream and try to sell it to some local mom and pop grocery stores because we weren't selling enough ice cream in the winter to stay in business. So when you opened that scoop shop uh, at a, in a converted gas station in Burlington, uh, for the sake of my Vermont-based listeners, where exactly in Burlington was the scoop shop? The scoop shop was at the corner of College and St. Paul Street. Uh, it's oh, now okay. a parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, for for those people who want to go visit Burlington and, and who have a little interest in the historical uh, importance of Ben and Jerry's, you can go the corner of college and St. Paul Street and embedded in the sidewalk is a brass plaque that commemorates the uh, initial location of the original Ben and Jerry's and you can you can go visit that plaque and you can you can polish it up and you can uh, take a picture of it and have a good old time right there at the corner. <laughs> I'll have to go check it out. Unfortunately, today, as you probably know, it was snowing, so it's probably covered at the moment, but uh, definitely one of those things I will do at some point over the course of the coming couple of days. All right. <laughs> so did you start making money right away in your formative years? No, we we weren't making money right away. You know, so I should say when Ben and I started this little ice cream shop, our goal was to earn enough money to live. We we wanted to make twenty thousand dollars a year apiece. We thought that would be enough money for us to live on. So we were not looking to start a big business. We thought we would do the ice cream shop for a couple of years, and then we would do something else together. Was that we a lot of money that, back then? It was enough to live on. It wasn't wasn't a lot of money, but it seemed like a lot of money to us. Uh, so, so that that was that was the goal for us, and we didn't have very much money to start. We had each saved four thousand dollars. And then we borrowed another four thousand dollars from the bank. So we we opened up the shop with twelve thousand dollars. It was a pretty funky place. We had renovated it ourselves. We were making ice cream with a five gallon ice cream maker that used rock salt and ice to freeze the ice cream and. Every day we would make different flavors and we had a player piano in the shop that we would <laughs> pump the player piano and sing tunes and <laughs> we, we were having a good old time, but we were not really making any money. Uh, we 
we pretty much broke even every year. So, uh, and our sales were growing. That was, that was the thing that was so perplexing to us was that our sales were growing, but the store never made any money. It didn't, it didn't matter how much ice cream we sold or how much more we sold. We always broke even. We, we never quite understood it. I think not having any business background didn't really help us. Yeah, were you guys uh, basically faking it till you made it, or did you have a good sense of how to run the business? I think your discussion of faking it till we made it was was a pretty good one. I never, I never thought of it in those terms, but we we were just trying to get by, and we couldn't figure out what we needed to do to make money, and so then we thought, well. Maybe we need to get out of the shop. Maybe uh, we were overscooping. We were scooping portions that were too big, and that was the reason we couldn't make any money. You know, it's it's hard when you're scooping ice cream because there's there's a real desire to please your customers, and part of that is by scooping extra big scoops for your customers. <laughs> when you scoop a big scoop, they're really happy and you get a lot of positive reinforcement and positive feedback. So we we weren't staying in business. We thought maybe uh, we could try to package ice cream because we weren't doing enough business in the winter when it was minus 20 degrees outside. So we set up a little... Uh, room, I guess you would call it, to make ice cream where we would start packaging ice cream into pint containers. So I was the guy who was doing that. Ben became our salesperson and he was driving around Vermont trying to sell this ice cream out of his car. So that's how we, I guess, accidentally got into manufacturing ice cream and distributing it so there, there was never any plan behind it you know yes was was the company successful i think it was a real artistic success i think people really liked the ice cream and they liked what what the the little shop was trying to do in terms of being involved in the community but uh we we certainly were having a hard time paying the bills. Yeah, I know in a uh, in previous podcast episode, one of my guests once said that in order to become successful, there comes a time when you have to go out and actually do what it takes to become successful. And it sounds like looking back, there was that moment, that inflection point uh, where you started packaging the ice cream that led to the growth of the company. It, it Ultimately, it did. It was not... It was not so much in the beginning, uh, but as I said, that I think that's what eventually led to the company growing because Vermont is is a very small market, and even if we had been a very successful shop in Vermont, it's pretty limited. And I think for the company to reach the size that it eventually reached, it would have had to go to new markets, 
And, uh, you know, Ben and Jerry's has been lucky in, in so many ways along the way. And part of it was that even though Vermont has such a small population, there's a big tourist industry here. And so people would visit Vermont either for skiing in the winter or right. uh, to come to the lake in the summer. And, and they were introduced to Ben and Jerry's when they would visit Vermont. And I think consequently, uh, they would go back to wherever they lived and they would want to have some Ben and Jerry's there as well. Got it. So once the company was profitable uh, and you started to grow, was it an easy decision to stay in Vermont? Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, we were we we felt like we were part of the community. We were buying our our milk and cream from uh, local Vermont family farmers. So it, it, it just made perfect sense for us to stay in Vermont and not realizing it at the time, but, but I think it's turned out to be great on, on so many levels. Uh, certainly there's clean air and clean water and wonderful dairy products here. There's a great workforce. There are great community values uh, in Vermont. So we weren't thinking about it, but it's it's been a fantastic place for Ben and Jerry's to be located. Yeah, absolutely. So big companies, you know, have an endless appetite for smaller brands, you know, uh, that make local, organic, and socially responsible products. So over the years, like Dannon acquired Stonyfield Yogurt, uh, General Mills bought Annie's Homegrown, and then Campbell's Soup swallowed up uh, Plum Organics. Was the decision to sell the company to Unilever a difficult one? Oh yeah, it was. It was a really difficult time, actually. Uh, ben and Jerry's never wanted to be sold. We wanted to stay independent, and uh, the situation was is that Ben and Jerry's had become a public company, which meant that uh, any anyone, any company, could purchase shares in the company. And uh, Unilever decided they wanted to acquire Ben and & Jerry's and, and offered so much money that the board of directors of Ben & Jerry's at the time was not able to find an alternative that would work for shareholders. Um, and, you know, the, the reason Ben & Jerry's wanted to stay independent was not about Unilever or, or anyone else. The, the reason company wanted to stay independent was that Ben & Jerry's has had uh, a, a very strong social mission uh, since the inception of the company and that it became a formal part of the mission with the mission statement that was written in 1988 and, and that talks about Ben & Jerry's having not only a financial mission and not only a product mission but, but it has a social mission to address social and environmental issues in the community. Uh, and, and that mission is equally important to the finances and the product of the company. And we, we were concerned that any company that wanted to acquire Ben & Jerry's wouldn't have the same commitment to that progressive social mission. So we, we tried as hard as we could to find an alternative, but ultimately the company got sold to Unilever. And, you know, it's been 
over 15 years now. There have been ups and downs uh, during that time. I think for the last oh, five to seven years, I think things have been very good at Ben and Jerry's. I think the leadership, both at Unilever and Ben and Jerry's, has a very strong commitment to the social mission of the company. And uh, I think that's been great. Right. So that's a great segue into so the next couple of questions I wanted to talk to you about, uh, which is the philanthropy and social responsibility of the company. And, uh, you know, from the very beginning, you've always been pushing the boundaries of uh, conventional business. You know, for example, you offered stock to Vermont residents only. Uh, hoping to spread the wealth in the community. And uh, you talked a little bit about the three-part mission statement. Uh, and I've said it before that it's a very Vermonty thing to have strong beliefs in social causes, and the same is true for Ben & Jerry's Corporation. The question I have for you is why you would decide to put the company itself into sort of potentially contentious waters as opposed to just having those views and beliefs represented just through you, the individual? Well, Ben and Jerry's uh, has had this heritage and this mission since it started. I think in the beginning, it was very much being a local shop that wanted to support community activities. And I think as the company grew, the, the mission of the company evolved with it. Uh, when, when the company first had a public stock offering in 1985, I think, uh, it established the Ben and Jerry's Foundation as the charitable arm of the company. And that was to essentially give away money that that the feeling Ben and I had at the time was that businesses pretty much make money. And, and if you wanted to be a caring business, what you did was try to give away money. And, and so the mission, the, the foundation was set up. And even though it was doing great things and even though giving away money is vitally important, uh, it became clear that the company could never give away enough money to really have the impact it wanted to have and that and that the real power of Ben and Jerry's was in how it conducted its normal day-to-day -day business uh, things like sourcing ingredients or how it does its marketing and that even beyond those activities of day-to-day -day business that business has an incredible voice and that people uh, listen to businesses, whether it's politicians listening to business or the public listening to business. And so we felt like it was important to talk about the issues and the causes that Ben and Jerry's felt strongly about, which, which are broadly, uh, I think, described as humanitarian causes. Uh, you know, most business, stays away from talking about controversial issues because they don't want to take the chance of alienating people. But Ben and Jerry's has always felt like it's important to talk about the values that, that the company supports. And uh, 
it turns out that I, I think that's been beneficial for the business at Wells. Uh, certainly, it hasn't made everybody happy, but you're never going to make everybody happy anyway. <laughs> that's so true. That's so true. I mean, a good example of that is um, the company's tweet in 2016 uh, supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. And as an as a Black African man myself, you know, I, I really, really I did appreciate that, but not just because of the tweet itself, uh, but also then the company then released a fairly lengthy statement on systematic and institutionalized racism and called for others to join their cause, not by standing idly, but also engaging in meaningful action. And so, you know, I find that quite profound and quite uh, heartening. And even though there were subsequent tweets by other people saying, we, I'm no longer buying Ben and Jerry's or anything like that, you know, uh, quite personally, I was like, well, I don't own any shares in Ben and Jerry's, but I said, we don't need your money, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, it, it made me really proud. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, it, it, it was a somewhat risky thing to do, but I think Ben and Jerry's does not stay away from controversial issues because it's it's the right thing to do and yeah. ultimately you either stand for something or you stand for nothing and you know even though you end up probably losing some customers the business overall has done fine and you know, I think Ben and Jerry sometimes describes itself as an aspiring social justice company. Uh, and I think that that's a good description. Certainly, the company has a lot to learn and, and can always do better. But I think Ben and Jerry tries to do the right thing and tries to learn. And certainly with the case of uh, systemic racism or inequality or a basic unfairness in our country. The company is well aware of that and internally it needs to, it needs to do work as well. And the company has embarked on, I think what it describes as, uh, a learning journey so that people within the company cannot just be talking about the outside world, but we need to figure out how to do things better within the company. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the great examples of this is that in April 2016, you and Ben were amongst the approximately 300 individuals arrested at the U.S. Capitol. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Sure. That, that was part of a campaign, a protest called, well, actually, there's two protests that combined together. One was called Democracy Awakening. One was called Democracy Spring. And it was uh, a bunch of different nonprofits and groups coming together uh, in Washington, D.C. to talk about getting big money out of politics and not having voter suppression and maintaining voter rights. Uh, it, it was unique in that it was coming together of many groups who don't often work together and who often don't work on issues like that. It was immigrants' rights groups. It was groups like Greenpeace. It was groups like the NAACP. So it was really fusion politics. And uh, as you mentioned, Ben and I were just two of 
several hundred people who were arrested. Uh, we were proud to stand up and use our voice about basic inequality and unfairness in our country. And you know, when you talk about inequality and unfairness, let's let's be clear about what's what's unfair and what's unequal. It's it's people of color, it's poor people, it's young people, students, it's elderly people whose voices do not get heard. And the people who do get heard are people with money. It's white people, it's wealthy people, it's big corporations. Those are the people that are essentially running our country. Yeah, so how important is um, external validation versus self-belief? You know, how do you persist with something that you believe in, even though people might disagree with you? Well, you you have to uh, determine your own values and then have the courage to have the company go out there and talk about them. But you, you can't be an island. And I think Ben and Jerry's, when it's, when it's operating well, it's, it's not just talking about its values or acting on its values. It's working together with its employees and working together with its fans and consumers all around the country to be, uh, to be working on these issues and bringing about a world that we all believe in. So when it's at its best, Ben & Jerry's is not a company that is making and selling ice cream. It's a company that, through making and selling ice cream, is working together to to bring about a better world. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And so you've been now exposed to a high level of money and wealth. What's your relationship like with money and wealth, and what role does it now play in your life now that you've gone to this position? You know, it, it's an interesting question because uh, I I did grow up wealthy, and in a way, I don't think of myself as wealthy, although I think from an objective point of view, I, I must be. Uh, I don't really identify with it, but I certainly have more money than I ever thought I would have. And I try to use my my resources and my access uh, in constructive and positive ways. So I'm not, not going on vacation all the time, <laughs> just being <laughs> at a beach. I'm trying to, trying to stay involved in, in the issues I believe in. Mm. Oh, that's great. I like that a lot. So I'm sure one day they're going to make a movie about you and Ben, and uh, it'll probably be glamorized in true Hollywood style. Uh, but I'm sure behind the scenes, there was a lot of sacrifice, blood, sweat, tears. You know, um, anyone who has gone to the factory in Waterbury, for instance, will have seen the graveyard of failed ice creams, for example. So can you just talk to me a little bit about uh, the unglamorous side of being the face of Ben and Jerry's? You know, I, I could talk about the unglamorous stuff, but I've got to say uh, I am an incredibly lucky and fortunate person. 
And yes, Ben and I worked really hard. Uh, yes, there were things that didn't always go right, but it's it's pretty hard to think that I'm not the luckiest guy in the world. <laughs> I get to do wonderful things. I get to be involved uh, in issues I believe in. And, you know, I think the thing that, that often doesn't get talked about is the people at Ben and Jerry's that really do all the work. You know, Ben and I have our names that are on, on the name of the company and on the name of the ice cream and so on and so forth. And people tend to think about us as the guys who did it all. But uh, as we all know, that is very, very far from the truth. And uh, the company's had amazing people that continue to do absolutely amazing things. That's wonderful. So someone once said to me that uh, life is a series of false horizons and our work is never done. So what are you doing with yourself now? I... Uh, I still spend a lot of time with Ben. I, you know, Ben, as some people know, has uh, has started a campaign that's part of the movement to get big money out of politics and elections. Uh, so his campaign is called the Stamp Stampede, which is getting tens of thousands of Americans to be stamping their money with messages about getting money out of politics. So I'm, I'm one of the stampers, and I try to help them with that. Uh, and I, uh, I'm still involved in the Ben & Jerry's Foundation. I'm very proud of the work the Foundation does. And and I, uh, I still do Ben & Jerry stuff. Ben and I just came back from Washington, D.C., where we were at the launch of the Poor People's Campaign. This is... Uh, a campaign that is taking off on the 50th anniversary of the original Poor People's Campaign that was started by Dr. Martin Luther King. And uh, Ben and Jerry's, the company is supporting this and Ben and I will be supporting it. And I'm, I'm very hopeful about the ability to get people around the country to uh, be working for building a, a political force to to support issues of uh, poor people in this country. You know, Martin Luther King, at the time he started the campaign, was talking about the evil triplets uh, of poverty and uh, racism and militarism. And I think those things are still around today. And, and the current Poor People's Campaign has also added to that ecological destruction. So those are the pillars that the campaign will be working on. Wow. Then that's that's awesome. And this is one of the reasons why I find some so much inspiration from from your story and what your corporation is doing. So I've got uh, two more questions that I'll get you out of here on. Uh, the first one is uh, I've got a 12-year-old daughter and she begged me to make sure that I asked this question. She wants to know what your favorite ice cream is. My favorite flavor is Americone Dream. For people who don't know, it is the Stephen Colbert flavor. It's vanilla <laughs> with a caramel swirl and fudge-covered pieces of waffle cones. 
Interesting. She was she was secretly hoping for vanilla Heath Bar Crunch. Um, mm. <laughs> uh, so, and then uh, the last question uh, that I'll ask you here is a question that I ask all of my guests. If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself and why? Oh, I I would probably say that uh, uh, I I would uh, I would tell my younger self to uh, to take more risks, to try more things, and and be willing to fail at more things. That uh, sometimes you just have to put it out there and see where it goes. That's great. Although, having said that, you wouldn't end up being uh, the yin to to Ben's yang, then. <laughs> it, it's true. It's absolutely true. It just, I guess it worked out well, right? Great. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for for your time and for sharing your story with me and my listeners. Uh, it's an incredible honor to have a guest like you on my podcast. And uh, I have to confess that it's uh, I was quite nervous and a little starstruck at the start of the interview, but uh, you have been so easy to, to talk to. And I feel so humbled that uh, a person like myself, you know, would uh, you would have time to, to interview uh, somebody like me. So and it's such an inspiration that uh, two underachievers with countercultural values could go on to build something that's successful and uh, build a paradigm shifting company. And uh, many companies and individuals probably aspire to the ambitions of social and environmental goals that uh, you have demonstrated in true Vermont fashion. And um, to have a, a mentor like you who can show us how to speak about progressive values and progressive things and still also be able to make money as well on the side. So long may that trend continue. Thank you so much. <laughs> it, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Great. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. Next time on the podcast On the Shoulders of Giants, I talk to Rick Welsh, a former drug addict who is now the executive director of Teen Challenge Vermont, the state's most successful drug rehabilitation program. Uh, people did try to reach out and help me out. But at that point in my life, I didn't want to hear anything. I didn't, you know, I didn't think that I needed help. I thought that I was okay. I didn't see the need. You know, I didn't, I didn't see the need of help. I just saw the need of me handling the situation. And then, you know, there I am at 18 years old. I'm a father. Uh, we had a baby boy. By the time when I was 20 years old, we were divorced. We were through. Um, and that was just a, a painful, a painful time in my life also. And that's, that's even when the drug use switched from, from the relatively, you know, cocaine. That's when I started um, getting into heroin. And that was a whole different level of addiction in my life just a, a different 
a different kind of addiction if if people could understand it was it was a physical addiction i mean i actually physically needed the drug to to survive to operate i needed to have that drug in my body and i was just a whole different level of enslavement hey listener just one more quick thing do you enjoy following the show or were there moments you found inspiring or instructive can you think of anyone a friend a coworker or a family member who would appreciate this moment if so take a second to share the podcast with them tell them about it direct them to the podcast facebook page by just searching for on the shoulders of giants podcast in the facebook search field or direct them to my website tcrotanira.com or lastly just show them how to subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast feed because we all grow when good ideas and messages are shared <laughs>